The following is a production by Cutting to the Chase Podcast. Just a personal conducting yourself standpoint. Like, how, how do I act when I'm a 19-year-old guy and I'm a lifelong Yankee fan and now I'm a professional covering the Yankees? That, that, that's a really good life-learning experience of, of how to conduct yourself and not lose yourself. Emmanuel Barbari, what's up, man? How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Will? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, so I know you've been busy with uh, some doing some broadcasting this weekend for basketball, right? Yeah, so Friday had the MAC opener for Siena basketball, legged out a win against Ryder, and then drove back to the Bronx, which is my alma mater, Fordham, and did Fordham-Maine on TV, a good women's basketball matchup. And then right back at it today so we're talking sunday morning sienna mount st mary's in emmitsburg maryland so took an amtrak from new york city to harrisburg pennsylvania which is about a 35 40 minute uber drive to where i am now which is emmitsburg maryland okay so you're in maryland right now yeah just just outside of maryland uh we're, we're like at the pennsylvania maryland border area Gotcha. So I'm in Virginia. So you're somewhat close to me at this point. Yeah, yeah, not too far. It's funny. It all ties together when you're when you're in the general Atlantic Northeast area. It seems you can be within spitting distance of one another in 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 multiple places. Yeah, for sure. So uh, is this typically your weekends? Like you have a lot of travel for doing all the the games, broadcasting. Uh, what about during the week itself as well? So it depends on the weekend during the season. Some weeks I'm just in Albany and we have home games or some weeks I'm, I'm all over the place or some weeks I'll have uh, different jobs outside of Siena that, that create that travel. So every week takes on a life of its own, if you will. But I kind of look at my weeks as, as two sections during the basketball season. There's a front end of the week where I'm back quote-unquote home or in the New York City area and I'm doing some stuff at maybe WFAN maybe I'll do some stuff there over the weekend as well but but the front end of the week is typically free because the max schedule is Friday Sunday Friday Sunday or in the women's case Thursday Saturday and then weekends um usually up in Albany or rotating back and forth if I have another job to do But yeah, every Sunday of every week, even though Sunday isn't technically the start of the week, depending on who you talk to, I I, I map it out and I figure out where I have to be and figuring out the travel for that week, if there is any, and then yeah, just making it work during basketball season. But wherever I have to be, the non-work aspect of this always takes over because it's just fun being around sports and and, and calling sports games. Is it a lot of solo travel or are you uh, going with your specific broadcast partners or how is that kind of working for you? Sometimes it's with my specific broadcast partner. Sometimes it's with the team. The, the unique aspect of me being a Sienna broadcaster who lives downstate for, for work downstate as well. And downstate's actually a term. I didn't know it was a term. Upstate is what I used to always call Albany, <laughs> Buffalo, all those yeah. places. But they call it downstate, where, where I live. But 
but being a guy who who lives downstate for an upstate job, I'm not always flying with the team because they'll be flying out of Albany to wherever they're going. I'm not just going to drive up to Albany to fly down to a certain place. Now, if there's a game on a Friday night and they're flying Saturday for a Sunday game, I can fly out of Albany. But th there are times where you know, you're playing Iona or Manhattan, at Manhattan or at Iona, and there are several local schools on top of them, a Ryder, Quinnipiac, Fairfield, and, and then I'm closer to home, so I'll just go home and then I'll fly out of Long Island, JFK, LaGuardia, to wherever I'm going, or Amtrak if it's not too far of a, of a trip. Do you know all of your specific broadcast partners, or do you have to kind of, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've been working with the same ones for over a year now or whatever, but like, is it tough to maybe get that chemistry with each partner, or do you all know each other pretty well at this point? At Siena, we know each other well at this point. Thankfully, I've had the pleasure of working with the same two guys on the men's basketball games for the three years that I've been there. So there's been no turnover. It's been Andy Grizzulis on home games, Connor Fenlin on road games, with a rare exception where they trade a game or they miss a game. But it's always been them. And I know how they operate. I know how they work. I love them as people. Andy is very funny and He's X's and O's based, but but he wants to have a good time on the broadcast, and I appreciate that, and it brings the best out of my personality, but I also know I don't have to prepare certain things as much when I work with Andy because I know generally how the broadcast is going to go. When I'm working with Connor, I know he's well-prepared with, with stats, with numbers. He's going to break down the game, and, and he'll bring in his own personality, but it's to me, it's much more of an X's and O's broadcast when I'm working with, with Connor. So there's a different way I prepare for that game. So it's cool. You get to know your partner's tendencies. You spend a lot of time with them. So there's that body language element of we're not going to speak over each other. We're very rarely going to speak over each other because we don't have to signal when we're going to speak. Uh, we know exactly. It's like knowing a person for years. You, you, you know their body language. You know when they want to get something in. You know when, when the back and forth kind of plays itself out. With new broadcast partners, which I have on some freelance TV games, whether it be the Fordham game I did the other day or any other new situation I walk into, it is a challenge because you don't know the person and, and it's a blank canvas. Last year for Siena Women's Basketball, I worked with a brand new partner for the entire season, uh, Brian Rubino. It was great, but you have to learn each other uh, when you start the year. And I always think it's important. You can't go into that first broadcast with somebody having not talked to them yet. Uh, like you can't expect to have a fluid on-air conversation without having had an off-air conversation. A lot of people think it can be done, but, but I don't think it can be done. I, I think it actually takes probably a couple conversations going into the game, but most people don't have time leading into it for two or three conversations, but at least get them on the phone, talk about things. It doesn't even have to be about the game or about basketball, just about anything about their life, get to know them, and have that normal conversation so it doesn't feel abnormal when you step into what feels like a formal situation of broadcasting on the air, but you want it to feel as, as casual as possible. So, so I think it's really important yeah. with new guys just to get them on the phone or to meet up in person uh, before that first game. Yeah, that makes sense, because I don't necessarily always think about it when I'm watching a game on TV, 
Whereas, you know, the, I just, I guess I just assume the broadcasters know each other. They're, they're professionals, all that. But sometimes I step back and think like, I wonder how they prep or I wonder how well they know each other. And sometimes you can even kind of tell if they're kind of maybe new working with each other. You can tell maybe they're, like you said, stepping up, stepping up uh, over each other when they're talking. So it's one of those dynamics that it's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, yeah, and it can be stiff at times, but that could just be a broadcaster's style too. But what you'll see on TV, on, on the networks, is a lot of these people who have been there for a while that aren't the new crews are with the same guy or, or, or with, the, with the same team. And I think that's a really good thing that you don't just envision it, okay, I'm going to hire this play-by-play guy. I know you're hiring a team, and if things work out, that's how, that's how the hires envision it is – that team's going to stay together, and that's what's going to make the broadcast great. So what do you like to see are teams that, that stick together, and, and then that chemistry, they may know each other for years, but it's only going to get better year after year, and, and each year is going to be better than the last because they, they're getting better at what they do, but, but they know each other better each passing year. So uh, I thought it was interesting – Thinking back on it, our paths actually started at Elite Sports New York, the website that we were writing for some seven, eight or so years ago. Uh, and I knew since then I'd seen you on Facebook, you know, doing games, broadcasting, things like that. But I think it really hit home for me over the summer when I happened to be listening listening to uh, WFAN and heard you coming on soon. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember him. I remember, you know, interacting with him somewhat or we both wrote together and stuff like that. So uh, what's it been like going from, you know, writing and here you are broadcasting major, you know, sporting events. We'll get into the Yankees series with the Pirates here in a bit, but uh, just your entire journey so far. No, it's funny. You mentioned Elite Sports New York and a lot of the people who I quote unquote know there, I never met, but like we were in this remote space where we were all contributing to this, this website and I I kept seeing the same names. So so you like know the people without knowing them, which is funny. Uh, You were one of those people who popped up over and over and over again. And uh, so so it wasn't like you were unfamiliar when you, when you reached out at all. Uh, and there are a lot of people like that that I remember from Elite Sports New York. And it was like we it was remote work before remote work was a thing. And, you know, we were all we were all on Slack talking to each other and uh, making things happen. So, yeah, fond memories of that. That was when I was just in high school and looking for anything sports media related to do. And it's not that I don't like writing or wouldn't do it again, but I was just looking for anything. And that was cool. It was like an independent New York sports website. It was pretty legit at the time. Um, not that they're not legit now, but but at the time it was like starting and growing, and that's what made it cool to be a part of. And, and we were growing it up, we were building it up, and I just wanted to get my my feet wet with anything like that. I didn't know whether I wanted to write or to broadcast. And then I learned later in high school, you know, I really wanted to take the broadcast route. So I just poured everything into it, like kind of with ESNY. I, I just wanted to immerse myself, learn as much as I could about it. I went to a broadcast camp in high school. The guy who ran it went to Fordham. So he was a little biased towards uh, Fordham, which was a good thing for me in my life because it, it was a great place for me to go. But um, I'm, I'm happy he was. And he brought in people to speak to us. And once I heard some of those people in the industry describing their life and their journey and 
how much they love what they do, and I already kind of had that itch for doing it, I was sold. So that so that broadcasting camp at Chaminade in high school, I went to Harbor Fields on Long Island, but I went to the camp at Chaminade. That that sparked my my thirst and my interest. And then I I went to Fordham, same approach, just learned as much as I could, did as much as I could, said said yes to everything. Uh, did internships, uh, got a part-time job at WFAN from one of those internships, and, and it was good because Fordham was local. Fordham was in the Bronx, so I could work a part-time job uh, in the industry while I was still a college student. And uh, that was while I was broadcasting Fordham games. That was while I was, I was covering the Yankees, which was a really unique opportunity uh, Fordham had and, and still has that really nowhere else has for, for college students to get credentialed as professional beat reporters. And... Uh, that not only sets you up well, everyone thinks about it from like a connection standpoint, which is true, like the people you get to know, but just a personal conducting yourself standpoint. Like how, how do I act when I'm a 19-year-old guy and I'm a lifelong Yankee fan and now I'm a professional covering the Yankees? That, that, that's a really good life learning experience of, of how to conduct yourself and not lose yourself uh, in, in that moment so, and not not ask the wrong question or approach the wrong person the wrong way. Uh, so I, I think the interpersonal skills are, are big and Fordham prepared me well for that, as well as some of the things previously like the Chaminade camp. And then got out and already had that part-time job at FAN from the internship in, in college. So it was just timing from there where I uh, just did everything I could, um, did the best job I could, and then a lot of it is luck, right place, right time, them looking for, for new voices around the time when I was starting out my career. And everything's kind of spiraled uh, since then when you, when you allude to the Yankee series. That was all uh, bred out of FAN and that opportunity. Yeah. Did you have any kind of lessons learned or kind of like welcome to the big leagues type of moment now in terms of maybe not even necessarily with Major League Baseball, but including that, like where maybe you learn something and like, oh, I won't do that again or I'll do this differently, you know, kind of like, obviously you're going to make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes for human, but like you, like you said, learning how to conduct yourself in a certain manner or approaching people or questions a certain way. Did you have any moments where you're like, okay, I'm not going to do that again? Yeah, I think I was really eager when I started on the Yankees beat at Fordham. And I'm not sure if it was anything I particularly said at the time, but I was way more I was way more keen on asking questions and, and trying to ask a good question. And I I would space them out purposely. Like at the time I understood I don't wanna I don't wanna overstay my welcome. I don't wanna I don't wanna annoy anybody, but I, I still think it was too much at the time. And I was just trying to, maybe it was proving to yourself that, that you could ask a good question in a Yankee press conference, more so than this is a good question. This adds merit to what we're doing. This adds to the conversation. Let's do it. So after, after a few times, I, I think it was probably an answer I got in one of those press conferences where I'm like, it was just the gut takes over and it told you, Oh, that, that probably wasn't the best question to ask. And I'm like, let me, let me back off for a while. And since then, if I don't need to ask something, I don't ask it. I'm always in those settings. Even when I'm just hosting the postgame show, I'm always in those settings. I, I go to the pregame press conference. I go into the clubhouse. I want to absorb as much as I can. But if there's not anything I can add on top of what's already been 
asked by the key people, the key reporters who take precedence, who have been there forever, who are going to ask the first questions. If I can't add anything on top of that, I think silence is fine. I think silence is a good thing. I, I can just listen and pick up stuff. And it's really valuable to pick up stuff and, and not only answers, but observant, seeing what's around you. That can inform you just as much on the pulse and the day-to-day of the team. So I think that's what I learned from the outset of, of covering the Yankee beat and now translating that into being back in a post-game capacity with the Yankees. Do you remember what that question was or who you were talking to in that situation when you're like, my gut took over? And Yeah, I think it was an Aaron Boone press conference. And I think I, I asked a question about James Paxton. It was ahead of his first Yankee Stadium start. And I just remember I'm like, that was now I look back. I'm like, that was not a good question at all. But but in the moment, I, I, I probably was just like I thought it was good. But based on how it felt like flowing off the tongue and then the subsequent reaction it's not like he was he was bad about it or anything but I'm like nah, that, that wasn't right it didn't feel right um so that was one of the first times where I asked a question and I'm like oh yeah yeah I, I don't I didn't need to ask that so so I think now I just kind of lay back and let the let the legends let the established veterans take the lead I, they did take the lead that day but but really take the lead where I'm not going to ask anything unless it's going to add something well, if it makes you feel better, whenever I watch press conferences, um, I always kind of watch the reaction that the coach or whoever it is that's being talked, you know, asked questions about uh, or for. I always kind of watch their reaction, and I always wonder sometimes they're thinking, "What a weird question," or if that's just how their demeanor looks when they're getting that question. So I know you're not the only person that maybe make that. I won't even call it a mistake, but just have that sort of, I guess, situation play out that way. Yeah, and it's funny. You never know, not only in the interviews, but but just talking to people in a professional manner, which is something you learn early on, uh, like the right way to conduct yourself in these settings. And, and you never know what is going on in their day. Uh, people never think about it this way. The manager or the coach, I understand you still owe it to the media and to the audience to, to bring your A game at that press conference, but it's a long season. And these people have lives. So, so, so they may just not be in the best mood in that particular moment. And it's like, oh, I asked a terrible question, but they may just not be in the best mood and, or they want to give you a short answer. They want to get out of there. So uh, also factoring that, and it's not always you, it's not always your fault, but I think a general level of reflection is important uh, to be critical of yourself before you think, oh, they're just grumpy. They're having a bad day. It's their fault. No, it's probably my fault, but you also got to consider that angle of, maybe it wasn't quite as bad as you thought. Right, exactly. Um, and I know New York media has this this perception of always being hard and critical and all this stuff, which isn't necessarily not the case. But like you said, there is that other element too of, you know, people have lives and uh, it's so easy for people on, online to say, well, you need to ask this. Why Why did this happen? Why did it, what about that? And like you said, it's a long season. Uh those questions will be asked at some point, most likely, if not in that present time. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it that the average fan doesn't really think about, I don't think. And, and it's funny that I, I understand the passion of the sports fan and, and the diehard sports fan of that team, that given team. Same token, though, we treat everything when teams struggle, especially in the New York market, like it's state secret. We're talking about a foreign conflict or we're talking about 
a presidential election. It's not, it's not necessarily that deep all the time. And I think it, in May, if the Yankees have lost seven in a row, that's important. And for the diehard fan, I, I feel that I felt that pain. I feel that pain in the moment. That question you really want asked is going to get asked at some point. We're not doing a season introspection in May. And, and that's something I've learned too. It's like we're treating everything like it's a world-defining conflict. It's probably going to get asked at some point. I understand why we want it got into in that moment. But if it's not asked, then it's going to probably get brought up. Um, just because I, I've learned over time, there's a time and a place. You're not going to do a uh, synopsis on the season in May. If you, if you get into that habit, you're probably not doing your job well because every day takes a life of its own, and there are over 162 of those days over the course of the season. So you probably don't want to do the macro instead of the micro when you're, when you're covering a beat or doing a show or around the team on a daily basis. When you're doing radio like on WFAN, and I'm sure you get those callers, those those callers in April and May who are like, we need to fire this guy, we got to do this, do that, and that's when you're probably also thinking like, all right, I get it, I love the passion, but you kind of kind of have to step back for a minute here. Yeah, you get that a lot, I, and that's become the the common thing with with especially the Yankees when they struggle now because people have wanted it for a few years. It's oh, let's fire this guy, let's fire that guy. And to me, it's not that I don't think people can think that. We live in a free society. Uh, we watch sports. We have diehard sports fans. That's, that's part of the game here. It's part of the territory of becoming a baseball manager or a GM. I always think of it this way. With, with any job, any, any prominent job, you either keep it for life or you get fired. I mean, you could step down or have an amicable ending, but that's very rare in sports. You keep it for life or you get fired. So what are the odds leading towards? You get fired. So that's why fans bring it up and that's why that's the default solution when things go wrong but i also think the the claim gets tired at a certain point when we've been saying it for four years let's come up with a creative maybe a more creative twist possibly on fire the gm or fire the manager a lot of my shows have been centered around when i talk about this topic and i i don't love delving into it um that that much but a lot of my shows have become centered around Look, they're here. This is the GM. This is the manager. They're not going anywhere, at least right now. So what do you want done? So, and I think that's where we should, be, we should be guided in these conversations, especially when you know, regardless of what, what you think of a Brian Cashman or, or an Aaron Boone, we know right now they're the manager, they're the GM. So what good is it to call up and say, oh, they should be fired? And I think it's gotten less and less and less is what I've noticed. It's gotten less and less and less as fans have started to realize, and I think they've known this for a while, but they just, they're not going to harp on the fire so-and-so drum when they know they're going to be there. And it's on me more so than the caller, but it's on the caller as well if they want to add something to the show to come up with something different that can further the Yankees' best interest or get them to the next level other than, oh, we'll never get there unless this GM goes. I, I, don't, think, I don't think that's true, first of all. But second of all, I think it's not, it's not creative. When you're on the radio, I don't exactly know all of your shifts, but I think you've had kind of like the overnight a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. When I fill in on the talk shows, most often it's the overnight. So I'll do a weekend 
you know, 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. or 12 a.m. to 4 a.m. or 12 a.m. to 5 a.m. Typically, uh, not as much recently with the new lineup, uh, and this happens every fall where the full-timers come back for the fall book and there are less less openings. There, there's less, naturally, there, there's less opportunity because why over the first few weeks of the fall when football's in full swing, baseball's wrapping up, no one's going to take off. So more so the past I'm talking about, it's the 12 a.m. to 5 a.m. or 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. weekday fill-in on the overnights. That that was my bread and butter shifts when I did talk talk radio. Not as much lately, just because we have a new lineup at the station. So I've been on more weekends when I've done talk radio, but but overnights have been have been the common theme. When you are overnight, how much of an adjustment is that as far as just being overnight? And I'm sure you have some interesting callers overnight also, right? Yeah, yeah. You got the regular callers that you're <laughs> ready for and used to talking to. I find it amazing. Not only the amount of people that are that are tuned in on the overnight, that there's overlap where people aren't asleep maybe from 12 a.m. to 2 a.m. Or they're waking up at 3 a.m. for a job or waking up at 4 a.m. for a job. So you have an intersection of an audience that creates something great. And the people that want to call during the overnight, uh, it's, it's incredible to me. The, the, the people who want to pick up the phone and be part of the conversation just like they would during day hours, but they're more specific to the overnight. And then there are some non-regular callers that I judge as a barometer as to whether the conversation I'm having is going well. If I'm getting a lot of non-frequent callers on the overnight, that means I sparked someone to say, oh, hey, that's interesting. Let me offer my opinion on it. Uh, so I think that's what's really cool about it. The hours, it, sometimes I just plug through because it's a last minute call and I can't readjust my sleep schedule. So you just plow through like anything in life and then you catch up on the sleep later. But sometimes when I know I have the shift for a week and, and it's a more rigid schedule for me that week, I'll stay up until 3 a.m. the night before. I, I won't do the full thing until 5 a.m. I don't want to put myself through that until I have to. Um, but I, I'll readjust. I'll go to sleep at 3 a.m. the night before, wake up at noon. So I'm kind of reprogrammed for that overnight shift. It's not like I'm worried about falling asleep. The adrenaline's going to take over. I'm on the air. I love doing it. So, so there's no worry about I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to not bring my best or, or not be energetic while I'm on the air, but I like to be as reprogrammed as possible and, and almost feel like it's day hours when I, when I do that the night before. So obviously you had the big moment of being able to call the Yankees Pirates series in September. So uh, obviously it's kind of had to be like a dream bucket list, all those words, that kind of a moment for you just you know, what was the experience like? Uh, were you nervous? I'm sure you were nervous, excited, everything. You're a professional broadcaster, but you're still calling the Yankees that, you know, John Sterling and Susan Waldman would typically do on the radio. So what was it like stepping into their shoes? Yeah, I think the nerves element was more so anxious, positive nerves in the weeks leading up. And I, I say that in a way where it fluctuated how I felt about it. It was elation when I found out. It was surreal. Uh, it was like that call to the bigs moment that I wasn't necessarily expecting at that time. And I've always dreamt of doing Yankee games. That that's was the that's what led me into this field. 
not necessarily knowing that it would happen, but yeah, we have our far-fetched dreams, and that was that was one for me. So getting a chance to do it, especially so early on, it was it was just incredible and surreal is the only way I could put it when I when I found out that it was happening. And then the mixed feelings leading up were a mixture of nerves, positive energy, where I'm nervous in a positive way, like so excited for it, nerves in a am I actually ready type of way, uh, because I'm a professional broadcaster, like you said, but am I actually ready to do a New York Yankees game on the radio? Um, even though I'd like to think that's what I've been working towards and that's what I wanted, you naturally question, and, and can I do this? And, and am I actually prepared um, to do this? And, and then just making sure I was prepared as possible. It was that I always have the nerves leading into a broadcast of, I know the preparation is going to get done, but for some reason, I'm always concerned it's not going to get done. So until it's done and I divide it up and I prepare everything I need to do where I can have that comfortable confidence on the air based on my preparation, until that's done, it's almost like the nerves that, that it's not going to get done. It's like when you're completing an essay or for a class in school. It's going to get done unless you're just willing to fail it. But I'm nervous it's not going to get done until it gets done. So it's that same thing with broadcast preparation. So every day I didn't have all my pirates prep done, I was a little bit nervous, but I knew it was going to get done. So, so I divided it up. The month leading in, I, I got that done. And what, I think this is the key with any broadcast. Once you're prepared, I think the nerves almost 90% go away uh, because if you've done it before, you know this is what I need to be successful. And then when you step into that chair knowing, look, I, I can't prepare anything more, That that's a... Not a secure, but a reassuring feeling. It reminds me of those stress dreams that I'm sure you've had where you remember like you're in some college class and you didn't study for this final all year or something. And so when you're talking about it, it's like, I know the prep will get done, but until it's done, I don't feel, you know, I'm not like ready, ready. Uh, it just made me think of that. <laughs> I have those dreams all the time. Like I go, walk into a class that, that is eight weeks in already. And I didn't know I was in the class, but I actually knew I was in the class. But but I walk into it for the first time. Dreams never make any sense. And that, that dream never makes sense to me. But I'm panicked. And I'm like, I'm going to fail this class. How do I catch up? We're in the final week. And I missed all the assignments. How did I? <laughs> like, it's that, it's that deep-seated fear that you have throughout high school and college that never quite comes to fruition. But... I dream about it all the time. It's one of the worst dreams uh, you can have. That and the like driving off the end of a bridge that just ends for some reason. Uh, those are those are two of the most frequent but <laughs> worst nightmares that I have. I don't know if I've had that one, but I've had similar where I'm in a car and I'm just not getting where I'm supposed to go. I I, I realized you know years ago this was a common thing. It was everyone has this dream. It's not just me. And I would have a recurring dream when I was finally like, okay, that's just a dream. I don't even have to think about it anymore. Like I realized that's not really a final I have to worry about. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the best feeling when you wake up and, and know inside of you, that was just a dream. And I did not fail 10th grade chemistry. I, I did not, I did not fail the mandatory college algebra class in, at Fordham. So the, that's one of the best feelings in the world. It's also a good feeling to know that I didn't drive off a cliff 
just because the dream said that the cliff was going to end. Like I didn't know it was going to end. Just the dream made it so that that cliff, that bridge didn't didn't have any other runway. Uh, so yeah, it, it is that deep seated fear that comes up in the course of your dreams. And then uh, from the broadcast standpoint, it, it's just making sure you're ready and you're good to go. And then once I stepped into the seat, it was just as surreal as I would have thought beyond that. But being prepared and having done it before, just had to let that take over. And then once it was done, it was like, a, did I just do this feeling? Which was really cool. Uh, but now, months removed, I'm thinking, wow, that actually happened. Uh, that actually happened, that was cool. I, how did I do that? Uh, but it, it, they're all good feelings to, to, to be having. And it's good to know that in that moment where so much was running through my mind, my muscle memory of game calling and the way I do this and the preparation just all took over. And it was more muscle memory uh, than anything else because otherwise I wouldn't be able to do the job at any level, let alone, let alone that level. And here you are doing like Yankees pre and post game, right? And you're 24 years old. I mean, you're, you're doing stuff that I'm sure just a few years ago, you're like, man, I look up to whoever, Michael K or, you know, whoever in that seat. And here you are doing similar now. That was the coolest part of the entire experience was getting to meet those guys and really have them be mentors to me. I think that's cooler than anything I do on the air is people I long looked up to just having them become sort of friends and, and people you can rely on for advice or people who are supportive and give you that pick me up over the course of a season. Uh, th they couldn't have been nicer to a, to a new guy stepping into the, the Yankee broadcast world uh, this year. And I, I think that that's the coolest part of it all. And that's something I never take for granted. In addition to the on-air work, which is why I got into this. And I think whenever I look back or look ahead, I think it's important to say in the present moment and whenever I think or drift towards other things like, oh, what are the next few months hold or what are the next few years hold or looking back at previous decisions I've made in my career and in my life, I always remind myself like if I was 18 or 17 years old and then I envisioned where I want to be at 24 or 25 or 26 and it's like, oh, you're going to be doing some Yankee postgame work and you'll get a chance to fill in on a series and you'll be doing college basketball at the D1 level. Like all those things would have been, oh, I'd be cool doing that the rest of my life. Like I'd be, I'd be completely comfortable doing that the rest of my life. Not to say I will, I never take it for granted, but when my mind drifts, I always tell myself that because you always gotta compare it to that you and what that you wanted. And now, now when you have some of those things, it's like, wow, how, how can you ever think about anything but what you're doing at the present time? Who do you emulate as a broadcaster? Yeah, I think it's a mishmash of guys. Like a lot of people have somebody they look up to, but I think my style has to be a lot of different people that you know listen to, and then it turns into, okay, you don't know exactly that you're you're copying them, but it just works its way into your work because you've listened to them so much and you only know how to do it one way. So I think one of those guys is Kay and his descriptive element. Even when I've heard him on TV, he still is descriptive of conditions and stuff like that. 
just his description and and the way he's a pro. Sterling, I think, in his delivery and bravado and confidence on the air. I, I always get a smile on my face when when I listen to it. I think on basketball, guys like Breen and and Ruko and Ian Eagle, I, I've listened to for years. So when I say certain phrases on the air. I, I wonder where it comes from at times. Like, where did I develop that vernacular? It's probably listening to them all the time and then adding new vocab words over time and expanding that. But baseball, I really think, it, I'm not sure if it's this. I would need to really dissect it because I've developed my own style over time. But if you took K, Sterling, those are guys I listened to growing up. I'm sure you could find a lot of words I don't even know I'm saying or a lot of phrases I don't know I'm saying on mundane stuff like foul balls or called strikes, stuff like that probably sound like a mishmash of the two. Winter meetings are about to start up this upcoming week. So what are you kind of hoping for, maybe from the Yankees' perspective of what they would, you know, Soto or Otani, Yamamoto, all these different guys that are being linked to the Yankees. What are you kind of expecting or hoping to see play out? Yeah, I think Soto is the move. I, I don't think it mandatorily needs to happen, but... I have a feeling it's going to happen, and I think it's the perfect move for them uh, for the obvious reasons. They need, they need another big bat, a big thumper in that lineup. They need a lefty bat in that lineup. And the fact he's 25 years old, already one of the best players we've ever seen, he's going to be in the league for 10, 15 more years. You, I know it's not guaranteed. Everyone wants to bring this up. He's going to go to free agency, but you can lock him up long-term. That opportunity is going to present itself, and it's going to be higher, that opportunity, if, if he's in pinstripes already. So I think Soto is the guy. I, I think they should make that happen and not get reckless. I, I know they're negotiating right now, and a lot of packages are getting leaked out. I think that's all part of it. They're going to get to a desired package. They're the preferred landing spot. They have been the rumored landing spot. I, I just think it can happen, so it needs to happen. He's the guy you put him in the middle of that lineup, and I think that can make them great pretty, pretty instantly. It's not going to take too long. Uh, people may look at it two, three moves away. I think they can be one move away with Soto from being a great team because then you're not so reliant on certain bounce backs in that lineup. And then if certain guys bounce back, I think they could win the A at least again next year. They just need balance in that lineup, and, and Soto more than provides that from the left side. Emmanuel, thanks so much. Uh, I know you were playing, uh, trying to figure out uh, availability and everything. So awesome that we were able to make it work on this Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Will. Enjoyed the, uh, enjoyed the chat, enjoyed being on the show, and, and good to see you. Yeah, you too, man. Keep doing what you're doing. Appreciate it, man.